Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is April 14th, 2016. The Trans Pacific Partnership, TPP, is currently under debate in the Diet right now. They have taken a couple of recesses. It's not moving very smoothly. In fact, it looks to me, Michael, like this one is on the skids. It looks really bad now, and in fact, a lot of the newspapers have been printing leaks from the parties saying this is not going to happen in this diet session. And that, in looking at the calendar, that looks pretty certain. We've had, we've had boycotts by the opposition for various reasons that we can get into, but nevertheless, because of these boycotts, the calendar leading up to the final vote in the House of Councillors has been compressed to mm -hmm. the point where it looks like it's not going to happen. And if you don't do something, if you don't make it to the vote, the legislation dies and has to be resubmitted at another time. What right. people are talking about is leaving it in committee and walking away from it. That'll keep it alive for an extraordinary session in the fall. Mm -hmm. But right now, this it was dramatically put into play on the 5th. They didn't really have to go and, and put the legislation into the docket, especially since they have a new minister in charge of this, Minister Ishihara, who took over for uh, Amari Akira. You know, if you have a new minister who wasn't part of the negotiations, there's going to be a long period of teething. He's going to try to get you know what the information is. He can't answer questions in committee. They could have just not submitted it, but they did submit it, and now they're stepping back. Mm -hmm. Or at least that's what the way it sounds. There's been absolutely no decision, but it looks as though TPP this session, dead. We film Tokyo on Fire each week, and the last time we talked about TPP last week, TPP was on the docket, it was in committee, they were moving forward on it, and we thought that there was a lot of enthusiasm, there was a lot of power to complete the negotiations so that the Diet would be presented with a bill they would pass TPP and Abenomics would move forward based on a new new set of, of directives of how we're going to enrich the economy. That changed over the last four days. Well, there was a huge bombshell in that the, somehow the Democratic Party got its hands on a galley copy of a book that is supposed to be published by the chair of the TPP committee mm -hmm. and the former uh, Minister of Agriculture, Nishikawa. In this book, which was unfortunately titled The Truth About the TPP Negotiations, there were going to be details of the negotiations. The now, secret negotiations. The secret negotiations. Now, when the opposition has requested official government documents on the TPP negotiations, what they've received is entirely blacked out pages, page after page of nothing but black ink. It was front page uh, and it was news front, last it was front, week. Front page news last week. We discussed it. Now, that's normal. It, it looks like a dirty trick, but in fact, it's it's what they should do. I mean, these are, these negotiations are private. The government is required to keep them a because secret. Because the other governments don't want this information mm -hmm. revealed. They don't want to reveal what it is. Same thing and, in the United and, States as and well. And the thing is, Nishikawa was trying to pull a, 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 a fast one, go around it, and publish what he was party to in a book. Now, the DP got that, got the book, did not reveal what the contents were, but just sort of waved it at the chair, and the entire atmosphere changed. I guess so. In this case, what was looking like something that was starting to get moving, starting like, uh, not a juggernaut maybe, mm -hmm. but still uh, like a big Mack truck moving down the highway, suddenly came to a dead stop. Why would the committee chair uh, write a book 
that would be published during the debate of, of TPP. I mean, you're not even supposed to be, I mean, maybe he had written it for publication after the TPP had passed. That might be an interesting read, but he had it angled so that the book might be published even while the debate was continuing? I, I don't want to speculate about when or where he was expecting to release this book, or even his motivations in, in doing so, aside from self-aggrandizement mm -hmm. and, and doing, I guess, cool backfill. Things, right? well, no, well, there are things that you, you since he's, he's not a terribly popular legislator with his own constituents, mm -hmm. and could conceivably be turned out of office the next time he faces the voters, so that he would be Defending himself, offering a, a, an apologia or some kind of defense of himself is not out of the question. It's just the timing got really bad for him. Now, what we're talking about now is putting the TPP to bed and instead walking away from it and going directly into the April 24 elections in Hokkaido and in Kyoto. But Those elections started two days ago and 10 days of electioneering then the, uh, the, the day of vote will be Sunday in, in, on April 24th. Yeah, there are two seats that are open right now in the House of Representatives, Hokkaido 5 and Kyoto 3. Mm -hmm. Kyoto 3 was vacated by the Lothario who resigned due to his in marital infidelities, but Hokkaido 5 is, has been empty for quite a while since the death of Machimura Nobutaka, the longtime uh, person serving there and a former faction head. His seat is seen as crucial. Mm -hmm. the, the Kyoto seat for the, the ruling coalition is seen as basically lost. It's they're, lost. Right? They're, they don't, they're not even supporting a candidate there. There are some conservatives, some, some crazy candidates from crazy religious cults, and a former uh, DPJ person running as a socialist. That seat is going to go some way, and it's not going to go the government's way. However, right. they really want to hold on to Hokkaido 5. Okay, Hokkaido 5 is important for a couple of strategic reasons leading up to the upper house election. And it also has to do with TPP. So we need to backtrack okay. on it a little bit. The two persons who are running for it, and there are only two, unlike Kyoto, where there's a, a multitude of- and in Right. In Kyoto, because the LDP isn't there, it opens this vacuum and everybody else is it's rushing just in. just rushed in. Whereas up in the Hokkaido election, we have only two, which means that the communists are supporting the opposition mm -hmm. candidate. That's really crucial. Though there aren't that many communists in any district, nevertheless, their normal progressive votes, and they vote at a high rate, that's going to go to the progressive candidate. Mm -hmm. In this case, a candidate who is running, who is a, uh, a single mother, so it has that angle to it, who has a, who has a small child. She works in uh, social welfare. So that aspect of portraying themselves as being for the citizens before right. the downtrodden, that hasn't been really well played by the, the Democratic Party and the opposition, uh, that is being emphasized. Whereas on the LDP side, they're going straight LDP, traditional mm -hmm. LDP. The person running is the son-in-law of the former seat holder. So we have the, the legacy herit inheritance angle. Uh, he's playing the fact that uh, he's a former Mitsubishi Corp employee, but he's all, he was also the political secretary mm -hmm. of, of uh, a member of the, of the, the diet. So he's, he's, he's the traditional LDP candidate straight through. In addition, we have the question of Suzuki Munio and the, his party Daichi which is a local regional Hokkaido party 
Mr. Abe has reached out to Suzuki Munio, brought him into the prime minister's residence, entertained him, said, we need your votes of your regional party. And Suzuki came out and said all kinds of amazing things, including, oh, we're for TPP. Never before had the Hokkaido party ever made any such statement before, but suddenly they're on, on board with Team Abe mm-hmm. on this one. And, he, and Suzuki promises to deliver 20,000 votes within the district to Abe and to the, this candidate for the LDP. If it fails, and it's looking kind of dicey right now, uh, then a whole bunch of things fall out. Now, TPP has been a problem for Hokkaido 5, for Hokkaido in general. It's an agricultural area which really has agriculture that can be directly impacted by uh, increased imports. Right. They, they grow wheat there, which is ridiculous. It's, 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 it's Dairy production. Corn, especially, but most importantly, uh, meat and, and pork and, and dairy. Mm-hmm. Those things up there are very big deals, and they're big in Hokkaido 5. Suddenly, the LDP has lost uh, its interest in TPP. You know, it's funny because you would look at the dynamics there and you would think that a, a seasoned LDP candidate, pretty seasoned, I mean, he hasn't run for election before, but... But could, the, the one in the, in the classic mold right, of an LDP candidate, right. yeah. Running against a, a single mother without much of a, of, of a political heritage or background, she's going to get creamed. But in fact, the, uh, the, the, the surveys have shown that there's a, a big... Um, push towards the social services that she represents and, and the representing the downtrodden, that it looks like it could actually be a bit of a fight there. Yeah, there's a momentum there based on all kinds of aspects having to do with, with the social welfare of Japan, whether it has to do with the pension system, whether it has to do with childcare, that has suddenly crept up on mm-hmm. Abe. And they've been responding in an ad hoc manner, in, in all kinds of crazy ways that when you try to to think it through, you say, no, that, that's not going to work. The latest idea, for example, to increase the amount of child care available is to lower the the costs to individual consumers. But that's the exact opposite you want to do if you want to make the waiting list shorter. Mm-hmm. If you reduce the cost, more people will come and you'll have even longer waiting lists. And right. that's that, that you know, they're just floundering. Mm-hmm. And so this... This young mother who is running against the classic LDP candidate has a real shot in this atmosphere. But the LDP is pulling out all the stops. It is amazing to me that even the discussions on TPP would be pushed back a little bit so as not to complicate what's going on during the election of Hokkaido 5. Well, Hokkaido 5 is a trigger in so many ways. If the it's a barometer, L- isn't it? It's a, it's a barometer. If the LDP does really well in the Hokkaido 5 election, then we're talking about the possibility of a double election in, when, in July. Mm-hmm. If, they, if they clobbered them. If they clobber them, then the temptation becomes, yes. aha, we, we're really not in a bad political position. We can absolutely smash the opposition. And in- this silly idea of them collaborating together and putting together their forces for a single candidate, it's not going to work now, and it's not going to work later. And it looks, and, and the people have rejected it. Mm-hmm. We're, let's go for this. Right. Whether that's true or not. Uh, true. But that's the way, that's the trigger that, yep. that gets, that's what happens when the, when the, the final 8 o'clock bell 
clicks in in Hokkaido 5 and, and they start announcing what the results are. Right. Then the time clock on, a, on either a double election or what's going to happen in the House of Councils election starts. Mm -hmm. Whatever happens in Kyoto, nobody cares. Right. It's Hokkaido. And we've seen just a parade of the, the top leaders of the opposition and of the LDP trow, you know, going up to Hokkaido, where the weather is absolutely miserable at this time of year, and put, putting themselves forward to mm -hmm. try to win it for their person. And again, it is only a two-person race, which is indicative that the opposition, which has been very, very gingerly approaching this idea of a unified front, sort of like what happened in Italy with the Olive Coalition, right. that kind of left-center front to confront the standing, ruling, right-center party coalition, that kind of action, if it pays off in mm -hmm. Hokkaido 5, becomes the national model. And the tentative gingerly, well, let's, well, maybe a, a few people there, a few people, it becomes the national model. Mm -hmm. And then, bingo, then right. we have a very different kettle of fish for the LDP and Mr. Abe. Well, Mr. Suga will visit Hokkaido 5. The prime minister will visit Hokkaido 5 as well, you think? Whatever it takes to win it. Mm -hmm. it's, they've, they've thrown everything they've got into this one single marginal district right. in Japan, and they're going all out for it, and even to the point of sacrificing this international agreement, TPP, for uh, at least temporarily. Now, mm -hmm. w the, the, uh, the diet hasn't come to a complete stop on TPP. Mr. Abe is supposed to face the questions regarding well, from the opposition regarding this, tomorrow in, in regular committee session, the opposition has promised to show up. Okay. And they, they also they've... were able to get out of the, the LDP a party leader's debate, which for those who follow parliamentary procedure, it would, it would seem ridiculous. Almost all parliaments have these debates between the leaders. Japan, you have to make a special request and... The, the ruling coalition can say no, right. but they were able to claw out of the of the LDP, which is in a huge advantage position with two thirds majority in the House of Representatives. Still getting out of them. Let's talk about things mano a mano, right. and that's what's going to happen on the twentieth. Okay, and that's because TPP is now in committee for debate before it goes to the full House. The Speaker of the House has given a certain number of hours for this debate to occur before it's asked the rest of the diet to vote on it. And with, without having uh, consecutive days of meetings, that, that number is, is becoming kind of out of reach. Probably they're going to take TPP pretty much off the front burner until the elections occur in Hokkaido on the mm -hmm. 24th, but then it will go back on track, but maybe there's not enough time. Mr. Abe has to make a decision, and this is really Mr. Abe's decision. Just like he made the decision on the security legislation, go slowly. Mm -hmm. Don't make it look as though we're absolutely railroading it. Even though we have the votes, we have the majorities in both houses. We don't have to have any of these committee debates. We don't have to do right. any of this. I can tell the committee chair, make it as short right. as possible. We are collaborative. Where we are, we do not have to, to do anything with these people. Mm -hmm. Instead, he, he has this incentive to go forward and appear to be not a demagogic mm -hmm. dictatorial leader, which his election numbers would indicate, but instead a, a person who believes in the democratic process.
but it's a double-edged sword. Right. Because the more they talk about something, the worse it gets for mm -hmm. the government. And that's happened with every single piece of legislation. The longer the committee meetings go on, the fewer people believe in the government's position. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Michael. Please stay tuned as we follow this issue. April 24th is the day to watch, a Sunday. That is the election date for Hokkaido 5. It is a barometer for lots for the prime minister, for TPP. Stay tuned. Welcome back. As the spoils of war, the United States continued to occupy the Okinawan Islands. They were in fact part of the United States. The American currency was used as the coin of the land. They drove on the wrong side of the road. President Nixon returned the Okinawan Islands back to a Japanese administration, but kept a couple of parcels for military bases. And in fact, the Okinawan Islands host more than three-fourths of all bases that are stationed in Japan. 20 years ago, the United States and Japan signed an agreement to return Futama Air Base back to the Japanese, and Michael, not a lot has happened in 20 years, has it? Very little. Uh, some sand has moved at the Henoko Peninsula, and absolutely nothing has moved away from Futenma. Futenma is still a fully operating Marines air station. Uh, it's in an extremely dangerous location. It has been called the most dangerous military base on Earth. It sits right in the center of a, a highly populated area. There's no boundary area. There's mm -hmm. no there's no green belt protecting it. It kisses right, right up to the, the barrier. It's right up to the, the, the fence. There's been one major accident involving a helicopter that came down into in a university. No one was hurt. Uh, it was a very lucky situation, but everyone talks about the next time it happens. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been, in the past, fatal air accidents involving Okinawa. Uh, there haven't been any in a very long time, but nevertheless, everyone says this base has to go. Right. But replacing it with a new facility has been the almost the Achilles heel of Japanese governments now for 20 years. Mm -hmm. The promise made in April of 1996 was that in five to seven years, Futenma would be closed, returned to the Japanese, and a new base would take over, within Okinawa, would take over the forces. It would be a new base, but it'll be, it has to be within an existing base. Mm -hmm. That was the agreement made by the United States and Japan 20 years ago. Well, we're 13 years past the cutoff date, and nothing has happened. Right. They need to relocate to a similar situation, but Futema is massive. I mean, when you look at an aerial photograph, it looks like a giant blob that is open, surrounded by uh, just a very densely populated area. They need a significantly long runway. Mm -hmm. Now, Futema is mostly for helicopters, but they, the Marines also like to bring in larger aircraft, and particularly aircraft for transporting cargo. And that of, requires some kind of lengthy span of concrete mm -hmm. on which to land an aircraft. This, that has been the sticking point. And it's been a sticking point in that the location that they selected, which is a, an existing base on the Henoko Peninsula, does not have on it any space for a sufficiently long runway. So a runway has to be built on landfill out into Nago Bay. Site selection. The site selection... There, there, there are so few places that actually could accommodate it. Well, that's according to the United States Department of Defense and according to the Japanese government. The view of the government of Okinawa is very different. In right. fact, they say it doesn't even have to be here. 
Mm -hmm. It can be in some other prefecture, or it could even be in the United States on the island of Guam, anywhere but here. A reasonable argument. And they say it doesn't have to mm -hmm. be here. Uh, you, and don't put it here because we already have 73% in terms of land area, not uh, slightly more in terms of forces. Uh, the promise that's made between the United States and Japan on defending Japan, Okinawa bears the burden. Sure it does. And, you know, that's unfair. Mm -hmm. Move it to another part of Japan, share the, the, share the pain <clears throat> as well as the profit. Right. Now, there have been security issues that have made it a little bit more complicated than that simple argument. When the uh, agreement was signed, a few years later, we had the DPRK lofting the Taepodong missile over the Japanese archipelago, which triggered a, a vast improvement of the relationship, military relationship between Japan and the United States. Japan, which was sort of fumbling in the 90s, you know, should we move closer to China? Should we try to have a triangular relationship? Suddenly found they had a great friend in the United States. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and that relationship became has become ever closer since that time. So that the idea that we we need a new base there made sense and became became more sensible. More recently, the the, the shift has been from the north to the west, where we, where we have the Senkaku Islands and China's active attempt to change the status quo mm. uh, as to who's administering those islands so that it can possibly someday take them over. That, of course, has also increased the value of sure. the U.S. forces in that area mm -hmm. so that we have the political world outside of Okinawa impinging upon the decision so that the Japanese government has become even though this is such a marginal issue for them normally, you know, just who cares? Well, okay, we'll move it somewhere else. They, they, they actually have to deal with, okay, these have to be in a specific place, and the United States has to be pleased with mm -hmm. where that place is, and that's Henoko. Well, Okinawa has always been strategically important because of its geopolitical position. I mean, it is in, it is in the... Right in the middle. Right in the middle. It's a, it's a great location. And, and Taiwan's a reasonable distance. The coast of Fujian is a re reasonable distance. Kyushu is a reasonable distance. Even even parts of the the uh, economic exclusion zone, the EEZ of Korea, are in a reasonable distance mm -hmm. from Okinawa. Yeah, and traditionally, in fact, prior to the Meiji Restoration, it was so important to all the countries in the region that they shared sovereignty there. Mm -hmm. Okinawa was a kingdom that was both a tributary to the emperor of China and also under the administration of the daimyo of Satsuma. Right. And they all got along for 250 years with three different administrations running that same island because it, no one wanted to give it up to somebody else. Right. And that's the same situation that sort of exists today in the Senkakus. The Chinese government does not want to give up on them, even though... They're worthless rocks, mm -hmm. and neither does the Japanese government. Right. And they're stuck with that. Mm -hmm. And that bleeds on down to the U.S. presence on Okinawa. Okay, but Okinawa is a bit different. Think about this. It used to belong to the United States, free and clear. They re reverted yeah, well, they it. Were, under the peace treaty of 1951, the United States was given administration of these islands, but the actual sovereignty of them was not in question. It was Japanese territory 
occupied by the United States, but unlike the rest, unlike the rest of Japan, which was returned to sovereignty in 1952, mm -hmm. uh, Okinawa stayed in for 20 years, U.S. Uh, U.S. administered. Okay, because uh, it was the stepping stone for the for the Vietnam War. Sure, but the United States did not have to return all of it back to Japan, but they did. I thought I thought it was a good move that they did it, but they don't have to return all of it. And my point is that when they returned it, it was covered with all sorts of secret agreements and we're gonna be doing this and we won't do that and even the storage of nuclear weapons was, was a, a point of, of great contention there. But having a, an air base like Futema, they can keep that there. They don't have to do anything about it, but they're doing it for a political you know, motive. But the United States has these bases there and probably when it reverted everything back to a Japanese administration, one of the deals was we get to keep these pieces of land unless there's some sort of trade that's going on within that prefecture. The question though for, the, for Tokyo has always been, does the prime minister have the authority and the political oomph, if you mm -hmm. will, in order to get this deal done? And the answer has been repeatedly no. Mm -hmm. No, we can't do this. It's too controversial. It'll call, there'll be scenes of people being pried off the front of U.S. bases, you know, being taken away by police officers. Persons could get hurt. Some of them are senior citizens. They could even get killed. We would be in total mm -hmm. crap if we ever did this. And so every prime minister has just handed it off to the next prime minister, and they just keep handing it off until... The real change happened in 2009 when Hatoyama, running, leading his DPJ to what was eventual victory, made a promise that the Futenma for Henoko deal is dead. Futenma would, and its functions would be moved outside the prefecture or even outside of Japan. That completely changed the dynamic. The Okinawan electorate became radicalized. More emboldened. They became very bold. They said, okay, you see, we were right. You <clears throat> didn't have to be here. Right. And even though Hatoyama reversed himself within a year and ratified the deal that had already existed that had been done in 96, nevertheless, the people of Okinawa mm -hmm. are off on that. They said, we, 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 were, we were cajoled into agreeing to this in, back in the mid-90s, we don't have to. Now. We see a little bit of daylight we, here, more coalitions, more, more cohesion among the people who are voting in Okinawa. Let's kick those guys and out. And they kicked their butts in the <clears throat> 2014 House of Representatives mm -hmm. elections, wiping out the entire LDP slate that was there running on the districts. Those candidates eventually revived themselves mm -hmm. as zombies in the proportional list, and so they're still floating around. But... The, 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 the antagonism is so great that the Okinawans even managed to elect the first communist district seat holder since the 1993 revision of the uh, districts into single-member districts. That's the huge. First, it was, they, they are absolutely rejecting all deals that Tokyo has mm -hmm. made. But the, but the thing is, the Henoko to Fun, Futenma to Henoko deal is the only deal on the table with the United States. Right. So for every prime minister, it's been handed off, handed off, handed off, until we came to Abe. Abe said, we're going to build it. And dang it, he started pushing people out of the way, and they started doing the construction survey work. Mm -hmm. 
But that didn't go so well, did it? No, it hasn't gone well, and? And we have this process that's now going on, where, which a judge has ordered come to some sort of agreement, which has given the government some breathing room while we get through Hokkaido 5 and possibly the House of Counselors election before it comes back down with a hammer on the Okinawans mm -hmm. and saying, you have to accept this deal. Right. Well, we'll be seeing, we know that there's going to be no agreement. Judicial activism, the, the political process, the election in Hokkaido. Okay, that all those things are going to happen and then the government, if Mr. Abe is still strong after the House of Counselors election, then we're probably going to see more conflict. The Futema Air Base relocation issue, an issue that re just refuses to die. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Yamamoto Ichita, a three-term member of the upper house of the parliament, is making waves these days. He's a very popular member. He's very into high-tech communications and that sort of thing for the Liberal Democratic Party. Michael, you know Ichita-sensei, and you've had dealings with him as well. He's a fluent English speaker. He went to Georgetown University. In fact, he was a classmate of mine. But he's starting to make pronouncements now about the foreign press saying things that perhaps they shouldn't be saying. Well, it's not that he shouldn't be saying. It's that it's going to be received badly. Uh, he has this YouTube channel that he has put together of course, as a personal promotion vehicle within the party, but also he has sold it to the LDP as an idea about how we can get our message out. Oh, I think it's a great idea. I've watched it. It is entitled Cafe Sta, mm -hmm. and he usually promotes members of the parliament, something like Tokyo on Fire, where it's a one-on-one, -on -one, and they talk about political, they talk and about he, a lot and, of different and things. And he, he can get really top-level people. He had Prime Minister Abe on the he other day. He had uh, Amari on a couple of months ago. He had Suga-san on. I mean, he gets, he gets the people yes, he does. into the booth with him. It'd be nice to have you know him bring some folks along with us and talk with us here. I think that's an excellent idea. I think that would be great if we could get him to do so. But the issue that he's raised is insufficiently balanced writing about Japan by foreign correspondents. Mm -hmm. So that he's taken on as a personal crusade of sorts, a response to articles that appear in, I believe, French, English, and German? I don't think it's a personal crusade. I mean, he is rather close to, to the prime minister. They, they share the same political faction. I think he's in that, that sweet spot where probably somebody said, look, you need to be looking at this. I mean, this the national secrecy law is coming up, and we want to, our, our brand of Japan to be proliferated a little bit nicer than these Germans or these French or these uh, Americans, Americans or these are, damn are writing about. Right, yes. yes. Uh, that's true. Uh, but it's already the relationship between the administration and the foreign correspondents based here in Tokyo. It's already No, it's, it, it's, in, it's in the dumpster, let's be honest. They have a very poor relationship. The government does not send any of its ministers to the Foreign Correspondents Club anymore mm -hmm. uh, based on the reception of one of them last two years ago. Slap in the face and, there. And they, they, they have sent no one. And that is ahistorical. The Foreign Correspondents Club is where there has been interaction between the foreign press and also the politicians of Japan. Mm -hmm. And for example, Governor Masazoe of, of Tokyo has had a great presentation there, what, two weeks ago? Has, has a regular, he, he, he tries to go there every three months or so in order to keep his standing with the press and his image internationally mm -hmm. 
up to date. Instead, the Abe administration has shut down that relationship. And now, in addition to that shutdown, we now have Yamamoto Ichita on Twitter or via Facebook saying to some you know, folks who are pretty proud and pretty of their intelligence and pretty proud of their analytical skills, no, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. No, you, this is not, you're portraying Japan in the wrong way. What you're saying is unfair. What you're saying is, is premature. Mm-hmm. He, he, in fact, criticized the uh, Wall Street Journal, a well-known radical uh, anti-Japanese rag, of course, uh, for <laughs> it's saying that you know J- Japan's Abenomics has reached an impasse. Mm-hmm. He said, "No, impasse is not the right word. It's too soon. It's we, too soon. We need to give it a little bit more, more time." time. Right. Chasing after correspondence in this way is really going way counterproductive. Down the toe. It's really counterproductive. It only is going to make things worse. Mm-hmm. But of course, it plays well with the base in Japan, and especially the part of the base of the LDP that has argued that Japan's problem internationally is the way it's seen. Mm-hmm. The Chinese tell lies about us, the Chinese government tells lies, the South Korean government tells lies about us, and the foreign correspondents tell lies about us. That's why Japan is where it's, it is, that there are, might be reasons other than the personalities of the correspondents gets lost. Well, there are a lot of beautiful and wonderful things about this country, you know, and we can talk a lot about those. But also there are things that kind of irritate and, and grate upon one's sense of, of you know, the reality or, or, or justice or what you might think a, a, a normal democratic country should be doing. And, for, and, and who would think that that would be the responsibility of journalists covering news? <laughs> exactly. Well, this whole thing throws, I mean, we've talked about it before, it just throws a wet blanket. It, it really um, pushes down, it, it, it forces public debate to go underground. Well, I'm not sure. I think it's actually having the opposite effect in that it makes the the foreign correspondents even more feisty. And some of them don't need to be encouraged right. by this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more importantly, it perpetuates this concept within Japan that Japan is a victim of international mm-hmm. oppression, which is something you thought, you would hoped that Abe and his extremely confident right. message about Japan finally threw off the shackles of that. Because we've been hearing that for a long, long time, that the world is, that this set of people is anti-Japanese, these set of people are anti-Japanese. And of course, we do have anti-Japanese people like Mr. Donald Trump in the mm-hmm. United States, who ha- who doesn't need Yamamoto Ichita nope. to be on, to be saying, you know, you don't need to go after the journalists in Japan when you have someone of that caliber mm-hmm. mouthing off, go after him. You right. know, go out, don't go after the little fish, go after the big fish. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we're gonna be seeing from Well, this. Japan was recently highlighted as a country that should be more democratic than it, its policies show it to be. Well, that, in terms of the international rankings of freedom of the press, mm-hmm. yes, we see that Japan's rankings have gone down internationally. So in, in context with that, uh, former minister Yamamoto calling people or, or writing on their Twitter feeds or actually espousing on maybe uh, Cafe Sta about his views about what the, the foreign journalists are writing about Japan as being wrong and not based on, on facts is Looks really, like intimidation. It does look like, it, it feels like intimidation. It feels like intimidation because he does have the in with the LDP and with the prime minister. Mm-hmm. The correct response, of course, is 
Yamamoto Sensei, thank you for the interest. Right. I think you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Let's call it 50-50. We'll, we'll just stop here. Well, I think it's maybe just the attitude or maybe maybe the, the twist of it because he has a good program. It, it comes up on, on the tube and, and the content yeah, the, there the is very good. The talk show aspect is great. It, it's, but this new critique thing that he's doing, right? It's, it's, uh, it's really going after butterflies with a sledgehammer. Right. Going after butterflies with sledgehammers. We too, like Yamamoto Ichida, are trying to enrich the dialogue. We watch his program. We hope he's watching ours too. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. We're frequently asked why we came up with this name Tokyo on Fire. The fact is that Tokyo and Japan in general has been defined by fire throughout its history. In fact, just this week, there was a remarkable fire in Shinjuku in the district called Golden Guy. Michael, you don't frequent Golden Guy very often, but you understand the importance. And the fact that a fire occurred there is rather big news. It's big news, even though it's a very tiny space, because it has become such a tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. It's a small maze of very basically shacks that have retained something of the aura of the drinking areas that existed in the 1950s and 1960s. It's basically a, a throwback neighborhood with the, the whole area of Shinjuku before it became uh, the, the home of all of these high rises. It basically was just kind of a backwater. That's right, and this was preserved by the people there and is now quite trendy to go there. Mm. There are lots of little bars in the region and it, it's very now, according to what tour guides are, there. it's a big place to go to because it, it has such a, an atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It's kind what, of like underground Atlanta, right? Where they've, the city has grown up over it, but there are little pockets of where you know the old town exists. There are all kinds of places in the world, but this one was particular in that it, it looks shabby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the, the construction is shoddy, and it does look like a fire a trap. A little rat-worn. And right. also the, the, the roads are too narrow to accept any kind of fire equipment, so whatever happens there, mm-hmm. and something did happen, uh, can turn into a catastrophic fire with large losses of life. We were very lucky, is the, the, the message that came, has come out. Uh, there was one woman who suffered smoke inhalation, but otherwise, what could have been an absolute deadly inferno mm-hmm. actually was able, they were able to get in control of it and while the, the golden guy has been damaged, it's gonna keep going in and going on as a tourist attraction. Right. But the question is, for how long? Mm-hmm. This area of golden guy, it's called golden guy now, but there's a whole area around Shinjuku that still retains a lot of the flavor of, you know, way a long time before Japan really began to emerge. I mean, Shinjuku was the area of, of prostitution. It was a red light district, a lot of gambling. And a lot it, of gangsters. A lot of gangsters. And even today, there are a lot of gangsters. And, and, and it's a lot part of, of Kabukicho, right. which is notorious for its gangsters and for it, it, mm-hmm. its sex industry. But still, this was a rather prosaic, rather, you know, it's an old-style drinking area. Mm-hmm. And so little of Tokyo, it retains the flavor of even the 1960s, that... The loss of this uh, is it's quite controversial. Mm-hmm. Now, we have similar areas in places like Shimokitazawa or in Koenji, right. and all of them are recognized as incredibly dangerous fire traps, mm-hmm. that if there's a major earthquake, uh, if there is some kind of conflagration, these things will go up in flames and there will be significant losses of life. The, what to do about these areas when they're, they're so charming and yet so dangerous 
is one of the major issues. The fire apparently was caused by an arsonist, just an old uh, vagrant who started the fire, got away, and probably eight houses uh, caught on fire as a result. The wind whipped up, and even with the fire hoses pulled down the alleys, uh, there's really not very much you can do there. There's really not much they can do, and this is true for all of these charming mm -hmm. fire traps, as there is, you could refer to them. Uh, so Tokyo on fire, yeah, a lot of people have told us, you know, that's really a tasteless uh, <laughs> name. And I said, yeah, but fire it is. The, the, the flowers of Tokyo, right. the flowers of Edo that would used to be called. Mm -hmm. Fire as a rejuvenating and also a destructive force. Uh, it's not a bad title for us. Please stay tuned.